Apache Spark is replacing MATLAB in the domain of computational neuroscience. The constraints of running MATLAB on a single machine can't support the demands of neuroscience, which has huge collections of images and time series datasets. Jeremy Freeman is a computational neuroscientist who is adopting Apache Spark to be able to analyze these giant datasets that do not fit on a single machine. But Apache Spark was not designed with neuroscience in mind. For this reason, Jeremy has helped to build several libraries on top of Spark. Thunder is a library for standard distributed representations of data. Lightning is an API for reproducible web visualizations. These abstractions sit on top of Spark and add a layer of usability. As it turns out, solving these problems for neuroscience have produced tools that are useful in a variety of other domains. In our discussion with Jeremy Freeman, we talk about Apache Spark, neuroscience, and the technological and cultural problems faced by traditional academic research. Jeremy Freeman is a neuroscientist using computation to understand the brain. Jeremy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Glad to be here. It's January 2016. What is exciting at the intersection of neuroscience and computation? Oh, boy. Uh, There's a lot of exciting things um, happening. One that my group is particularly excited about um, and I think a lot of a lot of people are excited about is what an understanding of the brain can tell us about uh, principles of designing computational systems. Um, I'm sure your audience has heard a lot about various machine learning approaches that are popular right now, things like deep learning um, and although those those techniques work well in certain situations, there are also many limitations. And I think there's a lot uh, on the horizon in terms of learning from actual neural systems and actual organisms, how they work, um, you know, finding ways that that can inform the design of uh, ultimately intelligent systems. I think we're a long way off, to be clear, from, from having that connection be made. Um, but it's something mm. that I think is super interesting. So we had Francois Chalet on the show uh, at the time of this episode. Uh, it hasn't aired yet, but uh, he invented the the Keras deep learning library. And one of the things that he said when we were talking about this um, brain versus uh, computational, um, you know, machine learning stuff, is that he he thought that there is not really anything particularly remarkable about the human brain or just brains of organisms relative to the ways that we can design computer systems. So he didn't really see it as, you know, oh, we should look at the brain as this idealistic thing that we we should learn from. Um, we should more think about the first principles that, uh, that the brain exhibits. Um, and we can build, you know, computer systems that are based on those first principles. Does that idea resonate with you? I, I think that makes sense. I do, I, you know, I guess as a neuroscientist, I do find the brains of organisms to be pretty, pretty remarkable. I find organisms to be remarkable. Um, you know, it's, it's not just the brain, it's the brain and the body and the, that whole system. Um, I think it's definitely true. On the one hand, there are things that we can now build computer systems to do that vastly dwarf uh, the capabilities of any, any organism. 
um, often you can build algorithms to solve problems in ways that are surely not how we're doing it because of the the sort of resources and the you know maybe memory or, or other other sort of uh, constraints that you don't need to worry about in an, in a computer system. Uh, at the same time, I think there are properties of uh, intelligence exhibited by organisms uh, that include things like adaptability and and sort of robustness and the ability to kind of continue to operate appropriately under a wide variety of, of external environments and circumstances. Um, and this mm-hmm. is true in domains like face recognition or, or recognition in general. It was also true in things like navigation and just how do you, you know, you put a, a small child in a room full of obstacles and objects, it can sort of find its way through and, and not bump into things. Or if it does, it sort of gets mm-hmm. back up. Um, that kind of, of sort of intuitive contextual uh, uh, adaptability, I think we don't even have the right idea to think about how to build computer systems that exhibit those kinds of properties. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, there are things that computers do that are remarkable and, and in some ways dwarf, uh, you know, I can't, I don't have the memory, surely, of a, of a computer system that I could engineer. Um, mm. So there have been some fundamental technological achievements in the past five to 10 years that have really enabled some some big advancements in neuroscience. Definitely. What are, what are those technical developments and, and what have they enabled? Um, yeah, a handful of things that I think have been pretty transformative. Um, so one has been uh, just across the board improvements in recording technology. So if you want to understand the brain and what it's doing, you have to be able to record uh, or monitor the activity of its constituent parts. And in the brain, that means recording or monitoring the activity of neurons. Um, there are a couple different ways currently we do it. Um, and in both of those ways, the improvements have been dramatic. So you can record the activity of neurons with electri- as electrical uh, recordings. And there's been improvements in the development, as uh, is ongoing, of new electrical probes that let you record simultaneously from hundreds, um, uh, you know, or tens or hundreds, and maybe soon thousands of neurons simultaneously. Um, and there have also been huge improvements and advances in being able to use uh, light microscopy to uh, do recordings uh, of neurons. And mm. this relies on uh, the additional uh, ability to genetically engineer animals. So uh, in this particular case, their neurons um, basically light up when they're active. And then by combining that genetically engineered animal with the appropriate microscope, you can literally sort of watch the activity of neurons um, through optical uh, measurements. And Uh. this is now enabling us in animals like the mouse um, or or kind of cool case, the zebrafish to record hundreds of, you know, thousands of neurons simultaneously and really sort of watch if not the entire brain, a very large fraction of the brain, um, certainly more, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we could record the activity of one or five neurons at once. Um, so this is a, if you believe, as most of us do, that to understand a system, you need to at the very least be able to watch it. Um, this ability has enormously improved over the last several years. Hmm. So the point that you're coming at is, We've gotten to the point where we, we have a ton of raw neuroscientific data, but performing analysis and exploration of that data is not uh, trivial. It mm-hmm. can be difficult. 
So tell me about the types of data that we have available and give me an idea of of where we are in terms of analyzing it. How difficult is it? Oh, I love that topic. <laughs> I guess definitely something that uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of what my group thinks about. Um, and I think there are there are certain misconceptions actually that that are, are good to clear up right from the get go. So one is that it's not just about the sheer volume of data. Um, and I'll sort of elaborate on what I mean by that. Uh, in terms of what the data are, uh, often the raw data are images um, or uh, time series of various forms. Um, and that actually, although it might sound simple, that ex- explains or describes a large fraction of data that's being acquired now. Um, with microscopy, you're essentially collecting images that vary over time. Those images are two-dimensional, maybe three-dimensional if it's a volume, maybe four-dimensional if you have extra channels. Um, in the case of electrical signals, your the raw data is a waveform. It's a uh, you know voltage signal coming off of your you know one or more uh, electrical recording sites. So the raw data is basically just a giant pile of time series or images or maybe some combination of the two. Um, that explain that describes a lot of it. There you know here and there there might be might be variants. Um, and in terms of, of sheer size, I mean, th- these volumes of data are large. Uh, we're talking for imaging anywhere from, uh, you know, 50 gigabytes to a terabyte for one experiment. And you're doing, you know, hopefully multiple experiments every day, or at least an experiment every day. Um, and that's the sort of regime that we're typically in. And you then need to, yeah, figure out uh, and sort of, uh, come up with ways of dealing with and processing um, the data, the, what I said before about it not just being about size is that I think it's, you know, on the one hand, those numbers, uh, certainly to people who are familiar with kind of industry uh, workloads, those numbers are not that large. I mean, it's not, I think in this era, or you know, you know 2016, we're not necessarily afraid of the fact that it's tens of gigabytes or a terabyte. Um, but it's more about the just vast complexity um, of the kinds of things you end up needing to do. Um and the, the really complicated tension between the fact that every lab sort of has things that it thinks it needs to do with their data that's kind of unique to them. But at the same time, we are all kind of doing similar things together. Um, and how to figure out, you know, how to build systems for, for processing and working with these data in a way that's sort of sufficiently general, um, uh, but also supports all the various kind of complicated use cases that individual labs require. Mm. So in the past, uh, you know, computational neuroscientists would often use something like MATLAB on a single box to perform their analyses, or they're, you know, using something like Excel. But more recently, you've been making a push, you've been advocating that neuroscientists should adopt tools that offer more speed and flexibility and interactivity. And this has led you to Spark. Why is Spark an appealing tool for computational neuroscience in a domain where you're dealing with all these images and this time series data? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I'm, you definitely characterized correctly uh, that I, we, I am pushing us away from, definitely away from MATLAB uh, in general towards really open source tools of, of a wide variety, um, uh, of, which, of which Spark was an example, especially early on. Um, you know, back in when we started using Spark, uh, I was, yeah, really just starting to, to sort of think through how to deal with some of the, the large data processing problems um, and realizing that a lot of the things we needed to do 
especially in the sort of pre-processing stages of working with these data, were parallelizable in an often fairly simple way. Um, but what uh, the, the barriers were that any existing sort of prior to Spark, you know, most existing ways of doing parallelized computation, um, especially for people that are used to basically working with MATLAB, um, was really complex. You know, you want to take some scientist who knows a little bit of MATLAB programming and try to teach them MapReduce and write a MapReduce program in Java to do image processing. Uh, it's, it's a disaster. I mean, yeah. And, you know, I was trying that some of that and realizing uh, both for myself and anyone else how absurdly difficult it would be. Um, so Spark was really exciting because basically it had a Python API uh, really early on, um, which meant it was easy to integrate with a lot of existing workflows in Python. And if you're going to try to get someone to use an open source scientific computing environment right now, you know, I'm not like a Python. I mean, I love Python. I'm not a, I'm not a diehard. I think Julia is really cool. I think R is cool. Um, but Python's definitely a viable uh, and enormously powerful uh, tool. And it's something that people who are familiar with MATLAB can sort of feel comfortable in, has been my experience. Um, so the fact that you could be integrating with a Python workflow uh, early on with Spark and basically take more or less the same code you were using to do your image processing and time series processing and then parallelize that and often, though not always, get very large speedups was enormously appealing. Um, and continues mm -hmm. to be, uh, you know, very appealing. I think the combination of, yeah, a really clean API, uh, a Python client, um, and uh, really even just those two things made Spark very appealing uh, for doing some of these workloads. Nonetheless, Spark was not designed with neuroscience in mind. No. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so you've worked to develop a set of tools on top of Spark. Um Generally speaking, what kinds of APIs did you want to build on top of Spark that were specific to the neuroscience domain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, right, Spark's not designed for, for image and time series processing at all. Uh, it's really designed for, you know, basically like text files and, and anything that sort of has a JSON schema. Um, you know, whereas often in, in scientific computing, we're talking about binary blobs of array data, basically. Uh, and that fundamental that fundamental disconnect, I mean, Spark has never been and never will be probably the perfect tool for that. Um, I think we we spent a lot of time building APIs in, on top of Spark, as you said. Uh, and a lot of that involved just having convenient ways and simple ways of loading data from a variety of sources, which include things like images and flat binary data. Uh, you know, these are things that are not going to be built into Spark because... Uh, at least early on, nobody was using Spark for image processing. There were, you know, there's all these loaders in Spark for, you know, JSON data or various database connectors. But, you know, someone doing scientific analysis of images is not worried about connecting to, you know, Hive or like a, you know, JSON blob store or something. They want to load images and you need to provide a way to do that. Um, so a lot of what we've done is build, yeah, ways of, of, of in a distributed sense, loading data from different sources that are the kinds of things we interact with. And then expressing, uh, often by sort of following API styles that we really like, like scikit-learn, um, offering a variety of both kind of statistical calculations as well as more complex algorithms to be run on top of data of this form. Um, so, you know, things like I want to load a bunch of images, I want to filter them in various ways, maybe by integrating with, say, scikit-image, and then I want to, you know, take that collection of pixels and 
uh, do some kind of model fitting on it, whether, you know, factorization or some other kind of algorithm. And then I want to write the result out in a way that I can render with matplotlib. Um, that was the sort of workflow that we, that we wanted to build kind of clean APIs to handle. Uh, okay, great. So Thunder is a library that you built on top of Spark. And Thunder allows for standard distributed representation of data. It allows for manipulation and analysis of data. And it sounds like part of the advantage of Thunder is it, it allows you to uh, attack these data sets that are not in the format that is uh, particularly um, copacetic with Spark in, traditionally, these, these uh, blobs of data. Um, so describe in more detail what Thunder does. Yeah, um, that, that's, it's great. Uh, it's something that we've uh, very recently uh, has sort of evolved, actually, the answer to this question. Um, what early on we, we realized we needed to do uh, was basically to get objects that were backed by distributed representations of Spark, which in Sparkland is called the RDD, the Resilient Distributed Dataset. But this, the thing we wanted was something a lot more like a NumPy array because almost all scientific data, at least the kinds that we're working with, you know, I said before, it's usually images and time series. Another way to say that is it's usually some kind of n-dimensional array. Uh, time series is a collection of 1D arrays. You know, images or volumes, those are 2D, 3D, 4D. Um, they're all just dense arrays. And what, you know, Spark definitely doesn't have is a way to talk to uh, 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 its object, the, the RDD, um, as though it's an umpire array. And at its core, that's a lot of what Thunder did early on. Uh, and when we realized, partly by inspiration from, from uh, Sky Stefan Hoyer, when we realized how general that was, we actually have now broken that out into a separate library called Bolt, which is purely for the purpose of uh, representing an ND array-like thing that's actually backed under the hood. Uh, by Spark. So it lets you express computations in a way that if you're used to working with ND arrays or NumPy is very familiar, but under the hood, it's actually corresponding to uh, computations that are taking place in a distributed way. So Thunder is built for this large-scale image analysis, this time series data analysis. Um, it's understandable that the that you first noticed this was not particularly well-suited for Spark in the realm of neuroscience, but you know, this actually sounds like a generally useful tool, the ability to process large-scale data uh, that is in the form of images or time series. So can it be used outside of the realm of neuroscience? Oh, totally. Uh, and that's something, as, as, it evol- as the project evolves, we're really trying to do two things. One is to make it more clear how it can potentially be used in lots of different domains, um, and also try to, to break it apart into sort of smaller, more composable pieces, uh, some of which are incredibly general, and could be used anywhere, and some of which, by design, have to be a little bit specific to certain use cases. Um, I, I've been inspired by a bunch of, of people I've gotten to know, uh, especially in the Node.js community, um, just the sort of philosophy of building something like uh, you know, scientific tools into small, modular, composable pieces. Um, and that's something we're trying to do now. And I think it's important when, yeah, you have something like some of what we, especially early on, built with Thunder that we're now trying to, like I said, break into these smaller pieces is incredibly general. I have friends who do satellite imagery processing or you know, analysis of various kinds of planetary data or weather data. Um, that's a big one. 
where, yeah, fundamentally, they are also doing distributed or want to do distributed operations on n-dimensional arrays. Um, so we are trying to, yeah, basically uh, sort of break out all the pieces that are really general and make it easy uh, for people to integrate with their existing, um, you know, tool chains that may be applied to totally different data. Um, mm. What what kinds of operations are particularly useful for for operating on this on this kind of data? Um, a lot of it is what you might think of as sort of filtering operations, but one of the complexities is that that filtering can be, uh, depending on what you're trying to do, local or needs to be either local in time or local in space or local in some combination of time and space. Um, so to give you an example, if I have a movie of sort of an, a sequence of images of neurons flashing, uh, kind of complex images that vary over time, um, for that one data set, I might need to both do kind of image local filtering, think sort of image feature detection kinds of things, but I also need to do time domain processing. Um, and there might be things I need to do that involve processing on both space and time together. And uh, the ability to express a workflow, again, if this thing is a terabyte and you want to now express a workflow that involves you know, a sequence of sort of image local operations and then time local operations and then some combination of the two, um, those are the kinds of things I think we've done a uh, f- sort of figured out very efficient ways to express. Um, mm. So you know, uh, really anything in the domain of sort of filtering or extracting signals of interest from images and/or time series and/or both movies being obviously the combination of the two. Um, th- those are the things that uh, yeah that is sort of built for. Those are the kinds of operations. Okay. So I want to get to talking about Lightning, which is another library you've oh, worked cool. on. Yeah. Um, so Lightning is an API for reproducible web visualizations. Why are visualizations so important? Oh, so many reasons. Um, <laughs> especially, I, I think really for, for any domain, but especially for science. Um, I, I really believe that in, in science and scientific computing, uh, what matters most and really what we try to do is just make it as easy as possible to get from an experiment to some interpretation of that experiment, which can hopefully then guide the experiment you want to do the next day. That the, Making that as seamless and easy as possible um, is really what motivates everything we do um, on the computing side. And I think a huge part of that is, is visualization. Um, yes, there are certain computations you need to perform uh, on your data, but often the goal of those computations is to essentially extract or, or come up with some descriptions of your data that hopefully by looking at, you can then kind of gain some understanding and make a decision about what to do next. Um, and if you don't make that, that step of, of looking at it, whether it's sort of looking at the raw data or looking at um, a sort of processed or extracted form of the data, if you don't make that easy, um, you just end up slogging around with sort of bits of code in various places, sort of inspecting things in a complicated way, um, whereas often the insight you might need can be obtained really just by looking at it. Um, but it's sort of making it easy to just look at it um, is what I think is the most important thing about visualization. Mm. So making it easy to look at, it's fascinating. So with the Lightning Visualization Project, you also wanted to separate the process of analysis and visualization. 
And this is interesting to me because I was wondering why why would you want to separate these two activities? Because it, it seems like the, the analysis of data goes hand in hand with deciding what type of visualization you would want to create. So why did you want to separate those into into explicit processes? Ah, so yeah, I, I agree. You do you often want to do them side by side. So it sort of hinges on what we mean by separate. Um, well, Lightning was really born out of a a difficulty that me and, and the main developer uh, Matt Conlin, who's amazing, uh, hi Matt, um, were, were were faced with, which is that right now the most exciting uh, kind of tools for data visualization are are built in in uh, are, are web technologies, um, you know HTML5 uh, libraries, things like D3, um, but also all kinds of new up and coming things. Um, you know the web is really the place to be doing interactivity of any kind, uh, dynamic visualization, 3D visualization. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And we're sort of in a funny place right now because uh, although I love and our lab uses, does tons of work with JavaScript, right now uh, JavaScript and Node uh, are not really the place that we can do all of the computing we need to do for scientific uh, workflows. Um, you know, building something to do uh, the kinds of like image and time series processing right now, the science of the Python stack, for example, is way more mature. Um, there's nothing quite like that in JavaScript. So uh, hopefully there will be at some point in the future. Um, and uh, a very a good friend of mine, Max, is thinking a lot of it, and many others are thinking a lot about this. Um, so given that we still do a lot of our analysis in Python, um, but we want to leverage web technologies to do visualization, there has to be some kind of interface and, and ideally a clean one, despite there being some separation uh, between what's going on in WebLand and what's going on in, in Python land. Um, Lightning, I would say, is one example of a few ways that have been developed to try to sort of embrace and think about how to bridge that gap. Um, other ones, okay. yeah, include things like something called Vega, uh, which sort of speaks to this. There's something called Boca. Uh, there are a couple of others, but that's really that sort of separation is almost built into the fact that you're using two different technologies to do the two different pieces of, of what is fundamentally, a, mm. a, you know, you are trying to do analysis and visualization, but you if you are going to have to use two sort of different tool sets, then uh, what we felt you really want to think carefully about what does that interface look like and how do you build both sides mm. of it in a sufficiently modular general way um, to to be to be effective. Is this like in opposition to MATLAB where you do the analysis and the visualization in the same application? Yes. I think everything we do is sort of broadly in opposition to MATLAB. Um, <laughs> okay. No, I'm joking. Um, no, I think it's actually, it's a great, it's a great insight because in a way, uh, the reason that that, you're absolutely right. MATLAB has it easy because you're doing everything in the same language. Uh, just the other day we were talking about uh, how easy it is to build GUIs in MATLAB. You can build these great, I mean, great, I don't know, they're cool. Like, you can build these these interactive GUIs, and then you can, like, have conditional on a GUI event trigger the execution of some MATLAB code. Um, doing all of that, if you're stuck inside one monolithic thing, yeah, it's, like, pretty straightforward to do. Um, ultimately, I think that is not the right approach to scientific uh, or software development <laughs> in general. But if you're now in a world where you're using sort of different tools for different parts of a problem... You need to think really hard about designing clean interfaces to make these kinds of things possible. Um, mm. So I don't think it's, it means we should use MATLAB. It means that we just should think carefully through these problems and build cool technologies. So can you take us through an experiment 
uh, or a data set end-to-end from the stage at which you would use Thunder through to when, when you would use Lightning? And like maybe if you have some prototypical experiment in mind that has been used to great success uh, using these two libraries. Sure. Um, and probably along the way, I'll highlight a bunch of other things, libraries we use as well, because these things are never, you, you know, both, both really all the libraries we develop are meant to be composed with other things. Um, so, yeah, very typical experiment might be to start where it really starts you've got an animal usually a mouse um in some kind of virtual environment uh maybe the mouse is running on a ball and in a setup developed by uh, a phenomenally talented scientist uh here working with my group and the group of carl sabota uh nicholas safranev um he's built a system where the mouse is on a ball and the mouse is running on a ball and on either side of the mouse there are these walls and the walls move in and out um locked to the movement of the, the the ball and Nick developed this uh, basically to uh, build a system where animals mice could explore a virtual environment defined by tactile sensation uh, mice use their whiskers to sense where they are so as these walls move um, the mouse uses the its whiskers to figure out where it is relative to the wall and then guide its movement appropriately um, so Nick's able to uh, monitor now the activity of neurons in various parts of the brain while an animal uh, is in this uh, setup. It's crucial that the animal and the walls are virtual, by the way, because the animal needs to be stationary in order to be making these optical recordings because you have a microscope over its head and it can't actually be moving around. It has to be be held held in place. Um, so the animal is stationary but thinks it's moving because of the ball and these walls and you're recording the activity of neurons in different parts of the brain that might be involved in representing the, the, the tactile input or maybe representing the animal's plan to move or what it's trying to do or where it thinks it's going. Um, so with that, we get basically a large sequence of images. Uh, again, this you know could be maybe 50 gigabytes uh, at the end of the experiment. Uh, so literally, it's uh, a giant sequence of X by Y by usually Z, though not necessarily uh, arrays, um, you know, millions of pixels. Uh, that vary over time. And you also have behavioral data because you have a time series that describes the positions of the walls relative to the animal. You have another time series that describes the uh, uh, sort of trajectory of the the animal in this virtual space that it's moving through um, is defined by the movement of the ball. All right, so we've got a mouse on a ball and we have a sequence of images of neural activity and we have uh, sort of time series of various behavioral properties of the the animal's world great um so usually now this is where we start doing what generally i'd call pre-processing um so we have to for example align all these images in time the animal's brain is moving slightly while it's doing this experiment hopefully not too much but a little bit and there's only so much you can correct for during the experiment so afterwards you have to register these images so that they're all lined up um, and then usually we do some kind of uh, uh, what we call sort of source extraction where we want to take these images, which are just raw pixels, and find groups of pixels that correspond to individual neurons. Uh, if you look at one of these images, you basically see little blobs that are neurons, and then there's, there's other stuff in between, um, dendrites and such. And uh, you need to do something to try to extract out groups of pixels that correspond to neurons. Um, so those two, uh, and, and then once you have the time series associated with each neuron, you usually have to do some kind of t- 
time local filtering to try to remove artifacts, you know, bandpass filtering, various kinds of frequency domain stuff. Um, so that total sequence of sort of image domain processing, extraction, uh, you know, time domain processing, that, those are all things that with Thunder alongside um, various stuff from SciPy and NumPy, of course, and scikit-image, um, you know, with, with Thunder and, and then Spark under the hood uh, parallelizing, um, that's sort of that domain. <laughs> um, right. What you get out at the end of the day after you've done all of that is basically, hopefully, a time series associated with every single neuron um, as well as, uh, you know, a time series associated with very behavioral, uh, behavioral measurements. Um, and then what we do, what we do really depends on, uh, depends on the kinds of questions we're asking. Um, mm. you know, if we want to, in a more kind of exploratory interactive way, for example, render a big collection of time series and browse through them, that's something that we can use lightning for. Um, if we want to do something where, you can sort of render a kind of graph-like representation that shows individual neurons and, and how they're correlated with each other. That's something that Lightning is well-suited to. Uh, yeah. um, but, you know, sometimes maybe you just want to, I don't know, plot, you know, a histogram of activity. Uh, that's something where we, we can have an interactive histogram in Lightning, or you could use Matplotlib, or you could use, you know, Boca if you want. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we like to be very open to lots of different tools. Um, mm. But it's really when you want to start exploring, uh, you know, usually this kind of extracted data in an interactive way that we find Lightning uh, to be especially powerful. And then you want to sort of immediately share that with somebody uh, because you can send them a link and then they can sort of yes. interact with the very same interactive visualization that you were looking at. So, okay, so this level of uh, being able to model data on the neuro, like per neuron time series level... I can see how useful this would be. Would this have been possible without the kinds of tooling that you've built with Spark or just, I guess, without the kind of tooling that Spark provides? Um, I, you know, in some sense, definitely. It's just a question of time. Um, mm. I wouldn't say there's anything, and it doesn't bother me, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything that anything we've built enables that's sort of fundamentally not possible with other tools. Um, what is maybe kind of fundamentally different um, is that when you make these things fast enough, it actually changes the way you work with and the way you analyze the data. Um, and I really believe that. I think that if you, you know, some of these things, and this is how it was before, if you tried to do everything I just described with a sequence of MATLAB scripts, uh, you know, or even Python scripts running on a single machine, uh, you could do it, but it'd be probably hard to build in a, at least to express some of these computations in a clean way um, with things that are exist. And more importantly, you might have a script that you set up and then it runs overnight. You come back in the morning. Um, and the thing is, this is a, I just described a pretty complex sequence of operations. Any of the output of any of them can affect the way you want to do the other ones. Um, it might not be that till you get to the very end, that final step of looking at that rendered you know, lightning graph visualization that you realize you actually screwed up the pre-processing because you <laughs> see downstream that there's an artifact that's actually due to some problem earlier on. Um, you know, you see that neurons are correlated and the fact that they're correlated is not, it's not real biology. It's some weird artifact of, of uh, the way you did your image pre-processing. So now you have to go all the way back and rerun that whole operation. Um, the fact that, you know, if that 
every time you want to do that ticks overnight, uh, it will severely limit your ability to, you know, sort of chef around and try different versions of things and try different algorithms and try different parameters. But, you know, with things like Spark or sort of new, you know, new ways of distributing that we're exploring, um, you can, yeah, you can do it in a couple of minutes. And that just means you can try lots of different things over and over again. Um, I think there's been a similar story. Uh, if you look at the sort of trajectory of deep learning approaches, um, you know, I, I think, and I've heard a lot of people say that a lot of the advances over the last several years have really been due to the fact that whether GPUs or otherwise computing power just made it possible for a grad student to, in the span of an afternoon, train and compare a bunch of different models um, and be able to do that and see the results right away as opposed to waiting overnight for every single one. Um, I think in any domain of, of science or computing, if you can make stuff faster, it just makes it easier to iterate. And science mm. is fundamentally iterative and a lot of it is trial and error. And you have to try things and you have to evaluate. And if mm. you can tighten that loop, then you can figure stuff out faster. Of course, as, as you've pointed out, the tightening of the loop through new technologies doesn't matter as much if people aren't adopting them. And That's you true. wrote this <laughs> you wrote this editorial about open source tools for large-scale neuroscience and you said, quote, solutions can be found in the form of modern approaches to distributed computing, machine learning and interactive visualization. But embracing these new technologies will require a cultural shift away from independent efforts and proprietary methods and towards an open source and collaborative version of neuroscience, end quote. So I'd like you to characterize this further. These old methodologies that take place in research, um, you know, do things stay the same because people are stubborn and they believe that they should actually keep doing everything in a single box on Excel or on MATLAB? Or is, is it because people simply just don't have the training or the breadth of understanding to use new tools like Spark? I, I think this is a huge, huge problem. Um, it's a huge topic, an enormously important one. Um, I think it goes, as hopefully that quote, quote indicated, you know, well beyond, say, Spark, it, go, it affects really the adoption of all kinds of open source, open source uh, tools and technologies um, and science, uh, just in general, sort of adopting the right technologies. Um, whatever they may be. Um, I think there are a number of issues. Uh, some of them involve education. I think fundamentally, there's far too little training and basic principles of, uh, of sort of scientific computing, computing in general, software engineering in the sciences. Um, you know, at a bare minimum, any graduate student entering a computing intensive uh, field in science now should learn how to use GitHub should learn how to version their code, should learn or be exposed to at least a few, you know, a couple different languages. Um, and the fact that there are a couple different ways of doing a lot of things and, and to, to learn what those, those different approaches are. Um, they should probably definitely uh, learn at least one open source language as opposed to learning in MATLAB, uh, which, you know, most of them do. Um, you know, I think Python's a particularly good choice. I think, I think every, I basically say every incoming graduate student should learn JavaScript. Um, just given the, you know, rapidly uh, increasing importance of the web and pretty much everything we do, whether it's sharing of code or sharing of data or visualization or whatever. Um, so, you know, at a bare minimum, there's an educational gap in the sciences right now where, you know, students learn 
MATLAB for about a week. And then they just sort of, you know, figure it out from there. And, you know, maybe their advisor sort of helps them or the other people in the lab help them. Um, I think there needs to be serious effort to, to sort of expose people properly to the tools that they need. And I've seen a lot of people who were never exposed to these things. After about a day, you know, they get it. Like you show someone GitHub and Git and they realize, oh, I've spent all of this time like saving MATLAB scripts and giving them numbers uh, to indicate what version they are. I wish I had had this thing. This looked great. And it's like, it doesn't take long, but you have to show people. Uh, and that's really about education. I think the other problem is a, and some of this you said stubbornness. I think there's, there's a little bit of this. Um, there's a really strong tendency in science towards uh, what I'll call sort of monolithic problem solving. Um, I think almost every, every lab I've, I've sort of encountered and, 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 and worked with, there's always, for I think a variety of reasons, a strong tendency to want to sort of do it yourself. Um, it's this kind of cowboy or sort of cowgirl mentality of, you know, we're going to figure it out, we're going to solve our problems, and we're going to build things that sort of work for us. So labs, they love to talk about uh, their pipelines. Every lab builds a pipeline. And the pipeline for your lab is sort of your lab's little toolkit of, of things that get you from point A to point B, where point A is usually the raw data and point B is, is your, your results, your publications. Um, and every lab, I think, sort of feels the need to build something for themselves because they really want it to work for the, the work that they're doing. And instead of sort of looking at and being exposed to a potentially large open source community full of tools that could be valuable um, to their work, and also to think about how to build and describe their workflow in terms of small modular pieces that they could build and other labs could use, uh, instead, we have a situation where labs are basically building the sort of pipeline for their lab, and because it's for their lab, sort of by definition, is not going to be used by other labs, and then other labs are going to realize that there's nothing out there for them, and they're going to build it from scratch again. So you have this thing of every group basically essentially building out tools that do kind of the same thing, um, but instead of agreeing on conventions and standards and sort of building small libraries that everybody can use, uh, people just end up building stuff from scratch. And it's, you know, building something from scratch is really hard. Software engineering is really hard. Uh, so it's like, I don't blame. So the fact is, a lot of times it's not done particularly well. And that's not a failing. Again, this is a point, you know, there's a point here about education. It's really hard to do this stuff. Um, so if you're, if you take on the challenge of building an entire software stack for your lab, uh, without using anything that anyone else has done, and you build it from scratch, and you're not experienced, uh, you are not going to end up building something that anyone else can use. And then the problem just repeats. I want to talk a little more about this idea of neuroscience and computation intersecting. So you've said that we're not only learning ways to understand the brain further using computation, but we're also learning new perspectives for how to approach computation uh, based on our analysis of the brain. How is our changing understanding of the brain introducing us to new ideas about computation? This is returning a little bit to a, to a thread from earlier. Um, yeah. But I think there's uh, a, a lot potentially to be learned by um, having organisms you know, usually animals, but humans in some cases, 
um, solve problems and to try to have the problems that they're solving be problems that are kind of computationally rich um, and, and hopefully at least interesting or challenging from the perspective of things that we're trying right now to, to train computers to do. Um, and the, the hope or the sort of the possibility, and I think this yet, really has yet to be borne out, is that by watching how uh, organisms and organisms' brains solve those problems, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to build a system to do something, and you've got this thing, this organism, this brain that's solving that problem, if it's actually solving a problem is interesting and important, and you can watch it and understand how it solves that problem, then there's, there will be a potential for that, that idea to translate. Um, you know, I think one example, it hasn't really quite worked that way, but it's been interesting is to watch the development of, on the one hand, object recognition systems, and on the other hand, uh, sort of the organisms as systems that do object recognition. Um, and there's been a lot of work recently showing actually a lot of potentially commonality between the sort of neural representation of objects in the brain and the quote-unquote neural representation uh, of objects inside of, say, a deep learning system that was trained to do object recognition. Um, I think it's cool to show that there's commonality between those. It doesn't really take it to the next level of actually having what we learn about the brain inform the way we think about uh, think about the computational system. I think that has really yet to happen, um, and I hope it will happen. And you know, we're certainly thinking about ways that those those things might become a little more connected. Um, but I think it starts with thinking really carefully about the problems that you're solving. Um, you know, again, if I wanted to build a computer system that would I don't know, learn to play a game by just exhaustively searching through every possible uh, solution in a tree and doing that as fast as possible. You know, I think that's probably very different than how, how any, any animal uh, solves a game. Um, so I don't think I'd learn a lot about that particular algorithm by studying organisms. But if you frame the problem a little more generally, as I said before, how do you have a system that can kind of adapt to changes in its surroundings? Um, you know, if, if something, you know, an animal is doing something and you sort of change something about the environment or you change the rules and the animal just kind of figures it out, uh, you know, I want to I capture that. And if I can, uh, if we can figure out a way or sort of understand how brains um, do that, then maybe we can, can think about how to translate that into how we think about it. What do you... So what are your personal goals with all this research? You know, you're, you're studying all this stuff at the intersection of neuroscience and computation, are you trying to become a better researcher? Are you trying to develop better therapies? Are you just trying to explore the space? Or is there is there a definitive goal that you have in mind? I, I definitely have goals. I'm not sure quite how definitive they are. Um, I, I'm fundamentally interested in, first of all, how, how brains and organisms do the amazing things they do. Um, you know, I want to know how is it that I can sit here and close my eyes and imagine walking through the room that I grew up in when I was eight years old uh, and sort of recall it in vivid detail. That's absolutely astounding to me that, that I can do that. Um, and I'm sure part of what drives me is just a deep, inherent fascination in how that works. Um, at the same time, a lot of, a lot of what motivates me 
uh, now really has to do with sort of thinking about the the role that computation is playing in our lives uh, moving forward. Um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, there have been enormous successes in, in using, uh, recently in using uh, computing to solve various complex real world problems, whether that involves pattern recognition or sort of robotics. Um, these things are becoming very relevant to, to how, we, how we live in the world um, and understanding both how to make those systems better, um, how to think about uh, how actual organisms interact with uh, sort of computing things generally um, is, I think, very important, both from a sort of research perspective, but also from a perspective of sort of how we are going to live in the world, um, you know, amongst all of these sort of computing things. Um, and to really be understanding the brain and computation and how they fit together and sort of what interfaces uh, look like, I think will just continue to be more and more important. And I'm very committed and, and to be honest, a little bit afraid uh, of that happening, uh, of being committed to that happening in the open. And I'm afraid of uh, a sort of world in which really important advances in, in sort of computing and 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 such take place within the sort of closed off walls of large corporations. Um, I really, mm. I am a scientist. I believe in doing science and doing work that is shared and in the open uh, and available to everybody and reproducible by everybody. And it really matters to me that as, as sort of computation plays an importantly or increasingly important role in our lives, that research about it and how it works and how to make it better and how it relates to the, the human brain or the brains of any animals, uh, I, I really care about that taking place in the open. Um, mm. And that, that, those things, I think, drive in various ways pretty much everything we do. Well, that sounds like a good place to close off. Um, Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, and, you know, I'm uh, really interested in, in what's going on in neuroscience uh, and how Spark is assisting that. You know, if, if you ever have anything else you want to discuss feel free to come back on the show it was a pleasure talking great thanks so much for having me it was a lot of fun 